Well, today we are going to start a two-part talk called The Heart and the Harvest. I believe this is going to be a very helpful talk for you, especially at this time of the year as we get ready to go into the holiday season where you're going to start to shop and prepare to give. A lot of times that brings financial strain. And so we want to look at how we should handle our finances in light of biblical truth. It's a good time to align our hearts with God's heart and understand what the Bible says about how we view and handle money. And as you start to think about giving and generosity, you have to ask yourself the question, what does God want from me? And I'm going to answer that question right now. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. Proverbs 23, 26 says, Oh, my son, give me your heart. May your eyes take delight in following my ways. This passage is saying God doesn't want you to just follow his ways. He wants you to want to follow his ways because he has your heart. My wife, she's very nice to me on a regular basis. And although I think our wedding vows were important, they mattered, she's not nice to me just because she promised to be in her wedding vows. She's loving because she actually loves me in her heart for some reason. I don't know why, but it's real. It's authentic. And that's what God wants from us. He wants genuine love. Now, most people, they want to know what God says about money. Some people are like, I don't want to know, really. Just don't tell me. But we, by nature, especially in America, we are naturally enslaved to money. And the truth is, the more you have, the more it can have you. So God establishes a pattern of financial stewardship that removes the power that money has over us, and it's tithing. Not only does tithing remove the grip of money on you, but it continually realigns your heart towards God's heart. So today I want to show you in Scripture because that's what matters, that tithing is the beginning of financial stewardship for a Christian. Now, I'll just be honest, some of you won't be ready for this. But many of you are open-minded, you're hungry for the truth, and you want to know what the Bible says about finances because you want the Word of God to shape your patterns of living. Now, this is not something that we're going to talk about where I want to convince you with clever arguments, okay? But I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will illuminate your mind and show you God's ways through God's Word, okay? That's what we want, the Word of God. And I want you to take delight in following his ways because your heart is after God. It's an honor for me to teach you on this topic. And I consider it a privilege. And I want you to know up front that what we talk about, nothing is intended to make anyone feel guilty. Because if you are a believer in Jesus, the Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So nothing that we talk about is intended to make anyone feel guilty. But I'm here to speak the truth in a way that is gentle but clear. Is that okay? So this message is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to move quickly through a lot of scripture. That way, no matter what I says, it'll be pretty good, right? Because there'll be a lot of scripture. I'm going to read scripture to you. I'm going to give you the main point behind that scripture, and then I'm going to move on. Because I want to give you a full picture of tithing in the Bible all the way from Genesis to the New Testament church. And even if you don't catch every little nuance of every scripture, you're going to get the main ideas. Okay, so starting out, we're going to go in chronological order here. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. We see the first two sons born into the world, the first and second born sons of Adam and Eve. 
Cain and Abel are their names, and they come to God and they give an offering. It says, when it was time for the harvest, Cain, the firstborn son, he presented some of his crops. Notice that as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portion of the firstborn lambs from his crop, his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. So you gotta ask, why did God accept Abel's gift, but not Cain's? Well, Cain, he brought some of his crops. But Abel, the secondborn son, he brought the best portion from the firstborn lamb. And Abel's offering to God reflected that he had a heart for God. So we give first because God is first. He wants the best portion and the first portion. Cain, when God rejected his gift, he got angry, and that shows you that he had a pre-existing problem with God. It only got worse for him. But the order of things is so important. That's why we give first. The order makes a huge difference. You gotta do things in the proper order, right? You know if you've ever tried to assemble Ikea furniture, what happens when you skip a step because you don't need those instructions? The order matters. When I'm preparing a sermon each week, I spend a lot of time working on the order of what I'm talking about, and I'll end up moving whole sections around in my sermon. I'll move things from the beginning to the, to the end and, the, and vice versa, and I'll, I'll play with things to try to get it in the best order to make the maximum impact. And the same thing happens with your finances. If you get them in the right order, it will be effective. Nothing in your life will work right until you get your life in the proper order. That's why we give first. Later, we see that God decided to flood the world. And you might have heard the story of Noah, but God saw that there was a man who was righteous. His name was Noah. So God took Noah and his family. He put him on this boat, the ark, and all the animals, two by two, went into the arky, arky, and God flooded the world. And this boat kind of floated. And we see that Noah and his family, they were saved from the flood which is pretty cool, pretty good to be them. So then we see in Genesis chapter eight that the floodwaters rescind, Noah comes out onto dry land. What is the first thing he does? Build a new house? No, he builds an altar to worship God. It says, Noah, his wife and his sons and their wives, they left the boat and all the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. So the first thing that Noah did now that he had been saved from destruction was give an offering to God. Why? Pretty obvious, God had just saved him from death and destruction, and he was feeling pretty grateful about that, as you can imagine, right? So for us as well, we give out of gratitude because God saves. God saves, right? The name Jesus, if you break it down in Hebrew, it literally means God saves. He saves his people from their sins. We, like Noah, through Jesus, have been saved from death and destruction. And so we give not to be saved, but because God has saved. Amen? Then we go to Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Okay, that's enough of that. Stop, stop. He was called the patriarch of God's people. 
God called him to leave his native country and go to a new land of blessing. We call it the promised land often. In Genesis 12, verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram, he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And building an altar enabled him to give an offering. He gave an offering. Well, one of the reasons why is because in this day, any covenant promise like that had to be confirmed and sealed with blood. I'm glad we don't do that anymore, okay? That'd make real estate deals really awkward. It would make buying a new car really weird. But that's how they did it then. Isn't it awesome that God has made us so many promises, but that the blood of Jesus has confirmed and sealed those promises once and for all time, and now there are no more sacrifices required. Amen? Isn't that good? So every promise has been given to us through Jesus and confirmed. We give like Abraham because our best days are ahead. God's people know that our future is so much brighter than where we came from. And even as good as your life might be today, your future is going to be even better. The best is ahead. Like Abraham, God called us out of a forsaken place of sin, and he has brought us into a new place of blessing. And we know it's through Jesus. And one of the reasons we give is because we want to bring as many people on that journey with us as we possibly can. We want them to experience the better things that God has for them. So what was Abraham's view of giving to God? Well, we see a little bit more about it. There's a, an account here in Genesis where a lot of his family members, they're kidnapped. Uh, this army came and raided, stole from them, uh, kidnapped family members. Abraham, he was like, I'm not having this. He went Rambo. He leads a rescue mission to bring his family out of captivity. And it goes splendidly, right? He wins the victory. He rescues his family. He gets all this booty from war, like he loot everywhere. And he's just getting goats and sheep and gold and silver. And then we pick up here in Genesis 14, where Abram encounters this guy named Melchizedek, Abraham, the artist formerly known as Abram. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And look at this. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Why? Melchizedek, funny name, really cool guy. He was the high priest of God's people. He represented, theologians say, the coming Jesus. And you kind of see an allusion to that, him coming out with bread and wine. Reminds us of someone that we love, right? And, and so Abraham, he recognized that God had given him this great victory. And he recognized that this wouldn't have been possible without God. And so he gave this offering this tithe, 10% of everything to say, God, this victory came through you. It's because of you. All right. And, and so we see that Abraham acknowledged where he, he got his wealth from. And that's why we tithe. We give a tenth because everything is his. In scripture, the tenth represents the whole symbolically. That happens multiple times in different ways. But when you give that tithe to God, you're saying, God, everything I have is yours. It's all yours. Okay, then we go on, go forward, all right? We're moving quick. Abram, he had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob. And Jacob, he had a dream. 
He had a dream. I have a dream, Jacob said. He fell asleep at a place called Luz. And he had this vision where the Lord God appeared in heaven at the top of this staircase descending to the earth. And this stairway, it represented Jesus who would come and bridge the gap between man and heaven, allowing us to come to to God. And the Lord made this promise to Jacob, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. So what does Jacob do? Genesis 28, verse 20, then Jacob made this vow, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. And he says this in a way that this is ongoing language. This is going to be a pattern for me. Jacob was saying, God, I hear your promise. I'm going to rely on you to provide for me and keep me safe. In other words, I trust you. I trust you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called the patriarchs of the faith. And this moment right here is the only moment where a patriarch makes a vow to God. And what's the vow about? God I will give you a tenth of everything that you give me. This is not a fluke, but a pattern. God reinforces his promise to Jacob, and Jacob reinforces this pattern of worship. Like Jacob, we tithe because we trust God to provide. God is our provider, amen? Amen. And it's so much better walking through life knowing God provides for me. Life is not as scary when God is your provider and you have confidence that no matter what happens, whatever storm comes my way, God is going to protect me and preserve me and provide for my needs. And we tithe because we're saying, God, I trust you. I trust you to provide. So here we have these fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and including Noah's sons, and they or or Adam's sons, and they established this pattern of giving to God. What's the pattern we saw? Let's recap. They gave first, they gave a tenth of everything they got, they gave out of a heart of gratitude, and they gave because they had faith in God's promises. All of this is just in the book of Genesis. This giving takes place before the law of Moses is established. God called these men righteous, not because they were perfect. They definitely were not. Not because they followed the law. They were called righteous because they trusted God and they loved him. They were saved by faith in the future work of God's son, the way that we're saved in faith by the completed work of God's son. And so they did not tithe because of the law. There was no law yet. They did it because God had their heart. So then later, God does give Moses the law. We call it the Mosaic law after Moses. And you can generally break this law of Moses down into three categories. There's the moral law. Think about the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, steal, cheat, um, kill, or anything like that. Then you have the social law, which governs how people should be able to own property and that we should take care of the poor and, and things like that. Then there's the ceremonial law, which dictates how we should worship God and come into his presence and how men should make sacrifices to him. So this law is established. I'm going to ask you a question, kind of a pop quiz, true or false, pay attention. Did the law make it wrong to steal or commit adultery? The answer is no. 
it made theft and adultery obviously wrong. It was already wrong, right? Here's another question. Did the law make it right to care for widows and orphans? No, it made caring for the poor obviously right. In the same way, the law did not make tithing right, it made tithing obviously right. Understand why. The purpose of the law was to highlight the righteousness of God and our shortcoming as men and women apart from God. So it shows our sinfulness and it helps us understand God's righteousness. The law did not establish tithing, but it reinforced what God's people were already doing and it highlighted the pattern of right financial stewardship for us in our lives. So I'm going to go now into the law a little bit, so you're going to see a little bit more about this. Leviticus 27, verse 26. This chapter is not about tithing, but we learn some things about tithing in this chapter. This chapter is about people who wanted to dedicate gifts and offerings to God out of generosity above and beyond what they had to give. So they would dedicate land. They would dedicate animals or people and say, God, I'm dedicating this to you because I love you. But then in the middle of that chapter, we learn some things about tithing, which are very interesting. It says in verse 26, you may not dedicate a firstborn animal to the Lord for the firstborn of your cattle, sheep, and goats already belong to him. Okay, go to verse 30. One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. So what do we learn from that? People were trying to give extra offerings to God produce, land, houses. And God said, you cannot dedicate to me a firstborn animal from your flocks as a special offering because, well, that's already mine. It already belongs to the Lord. You can't come and dedicate to me a, a bunch of your crops because that first tenth is already mine. And how do we apply this to our lives? We know that we set aside the first 10% because it already belongs to the Lord. Listen, whether you give it or not. Okay, so how, how do we understand this, right? Produce, cattle, livestock. Back in Old Testament times, that was their livelihood. That's how they got paid. You might have done a hard day's labor and your boss might have come and given you like a bushel of wheat. Like, here's a goat. Good job, right? I'm glad we don't get paid that way anymore, right? Like if you had a thousand goats, you were rich back in the day. You got goats on goats on goats. It's a lot more simple to be able to pay with my phone. I'm grateful. I like the convenience, but we have to understand how this applies to our life. Now, you probably don't get paid with livestock. You probably get dollar bills, and that's your income. We set that first 10% aside to God because it already belongs to God. It's not mine. It's his. And so I give it to him. I surrender that tithe to God as a way of helping me align my heart with God and helping me surrender all my finances to God, which then causes my whole life to fall into place behind that. Understand this. Because it's already God's, that means I can't control it. I can't designate it. I can't say, well, I'm going to give you the tithe, God, 
but I want 10% to go to this. I want to pay some towards kids ministry. I want to give some to Habitat for Humanity. I want to give some to my church. I want to do this, and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I can't because it's not mine. I can't designate what belongs to God. Otherwise, I'm trying to come and take control of what I'm giving to God and what rightfully belongs to him. It'd be like someone walking in your house and being like, you are really generous. I'm going to help you. Let's give away some of your money. And you'd be like, whoa, 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 give your own money away. I'll decide what I do with my money. So we know that this is God's. I can't designate it. It's his. If I try to take back control of that tithe, I'm sliding back into a place where money takes control of me. Okay, so we go forward. What do you do with this tithe? Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 through 6. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling, his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. These people were bringing a lot of gifts and sacrifices and tithes to God. Now understand, these sacrifices, they were brought to God as part of the ceremonial law requirements for worship. But then there was also these tithes that were brought to God. Why, why more than one? I think the tithing is it's a universal principle. It took place before the law, and it still exists in the law, and it reinforces that this is a practice for us. But also notice what's interesting. The people also brought free will offerings, it said. What were those? That was people who said, I'm going to do everything you ask me to do, and I'm going to go above and beyond because I love you, God. I just want to do this extra giving as an act of worship. That's why people give above and beyond even tithing, because God has their heart, and the love for him overflows into generosity in worship. So where do they bring all this, right? We saw the house of God, the place where his name dwells. For us today, that's our local church. We bring our tithes and offerings to the place we worship because it's an act of worship. So that's for your local church. If, the, if you go to church here on a regular basis, you bring your tithes to God here. If you leave, you move away, you go to another local church, even though you like us in Arizona, you don't keep sending your tithes back here to Arizona, the right thing to do would be to tithe there at your local church, wherever you go. Your church family is the place where God, he refines you. He builds you. He smooths the rough edges off of your life. He develops your spiritual gifts, and he'll use you to build his kingdom. So we invest in our local church because we believe in the mission of the local church to reach the lost in our community, to build strong marriages, to raise up the next generation. We invest where we worship. So we bring our tithes to the place we worship. We go on to Proverbs 3, verse 9. See, we're going in chronological order. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all you produce. Now, even though we're Christians, we're saved by grace, we still look at a book like Proverbs, we say, man, that book is helpful. There's so much wisdom in the book of wisdom. And what did it say? Honor God with your wealth, with the first fruits of all you produce. So listen, we honor God with our wealth by putting him first. It's kind of obvious. Now, let's just say I had a carton of gelato from Frost. I do in my freezer right now. Gelato is Italian ice cream, life-changing. <laughs> let's say that I decided to share. Let's just say, okay, because that's probably not going to happen. And so imagine 
if I was dishing out servings of gelato to my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, and I left my wife high and dry. After I served everyone, I had some myself, of course. And I said, Amy, I'm sorry, there's none left. Too bad. What would that reflect about my attitude towards my wife? It would say, you do not honor your wife. In the same way, what would it say if I got paid and I paid everyone else and then I treated myself and then I said, God, sorry, there's none left for you. What would that say about how I honor God? If you're a, if you're a Christian and you struggle to tithe, here's good news. You're not the first, okay? So right now you can just breathe a sigh of relief. You can just breathe out like, okay, well, it can't be that bad. I'm not the first. There is a whole book of the Bible about people not tithing. All right, and there's a reason behind that, but the book of Malachi talks about people, God's people, not bringing their tithes and offerings to God. And so you've probably heard parts of it, but I want to show you some parts that maybe you haven't seen. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Watch this. I have always loved you. I have always loved you. But you retort, really, how have you loved us? I want to highlight this. People were doubting that God loved them. And the reason ultimately that people sin is because they doubt God's love. They doubt, God, you, you won't actually provide for me. God, you, you can't actually have a better way for me. I can't actually trust you to satisfy my, deeper, my deepest desires. So they doubt his love and they try to do it on their own. And this was happening and it was affecting their giving. And really the issue is that God wanted them to love him. And he wanted them to know that he loves them the same way that he loves us. Now what happens in this book is it proceeds, it goes on, and God starts to talk to the priests of the temple, the Levitical priests. And he starts to lay the smack down on these guys, okay? Now I'm not a priest of the tribe of Levi. But as a pastor and a spiritual leader, I put myself in this chapter and I read this rebuke. Okay, so it says in verse 6, The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give a blind animal a sacrifice, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is. Okay, so what's this? God's law required that people brought the best pure lamb, right? Like spotted, spotless lamb. You weren't supposed to bring to God like the sheep that was born with a birth defect that you didn't really want anyway. In other words, the people were bringing God their leftovers. Their leftovers. These were called not suitable offerings. They were considered defiled, these blind animals, these crippled animals. And the problem, the reason that God lays the smackdown on the priests is that they were saying, it's all good. 
It's totally okay. They were acting like it's okay. God says, you wouldn't try to shortchange your government at tax season, so why are you doing that to me if I'm your father and you say you love me? Goes on in verse 9. He says, go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you, but when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Okay, so we need to understand this. We're Christians. We're saved by grace. Through Jesus, we have all received God's saving grace and favor. Okay, you have God's favor, but it's possible to be saved and not experience God's special favor in your finances. In other words, it's impossible for God to bless your sex life if you don't honor him with your sex life. And he can't bless your finances if you don't honor him with your finances. It goes on in verse 10. And he says, how I wish one of you would shut the temple door so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I'm not pleased with you, and I will not accept your offerings. But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. All around the world, they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations. Go to the next verse of 12. But you dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you are saying, it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say, it's too hard to serve the Lord, and you turn up your noses at my commands. Think of it, animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these? So when I read this passage where it talks about people from other nations loving God and honoring his name, it made me think about how people all over the world love and worship God. And I think about how in some of the poorest places, like in Cuba, where our church has given in the past to help build house churches, some of the poorest people in the world, they live on literally a dollar per day on average. But what you will find if you go and you visit the church in Cuba is that the people in this church, some of the poorest people you'll ever meet, the percentage of them who tithe, it's like through the roof. Almost 100% of people who call themselves Christian, they tithe because I think they've already learned to trust God for everything because they have so little. And yet then you go to America with Christians who are some of the wealthiest people who have ever lived in the history of the world, and they say, it's too hard to follow God's commands. And they say, I can't afford to tithe. When what that really translates to is, I can't decide which luxuries I want to give up in order to tithe. I'm not trying to be harsh towards anyone today. I'm trying to be truthful and gentle, but clear. Okay, so this is not meant to be condemning. Then you go on to chapter two, where God continues to lay the smack down towards the priests who are letting this go on. And I read one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in the Bible. I hadn't re really remembered seeing this before, but here's what God says to the priests. You've got to check this out, Malachi chapter two. He says, you keep on doing this, I'm going to splatter your faces with the manure from your defiled sacrifices and throw you on the manure pile. <laughs> So God was literally talking crap to these guys. <laughs> that is no joke, okay? And chapter 2 describes the problem, right, that the people of God, they were marrying idol worshipers. The dudes were divorcing their wives for younger models. People were calling evil good. And then you start to understand the problem is not their lack of tithing. It was that God did not have the people's heart. And the lack of proper giving was a reflection of their lack of love for God. 
The modern day equivalent of this is that people go through the motions of worship without having a heart of worship. And they'll say, God is my priority, but then their giving does not reflect a heart after God. Go to chapter 3 of Malachi chapter 3. You may have heard this passage. So God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Remember the vow that Jacob made? God is saying, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm forgiving. He has always been gracious and merciful and forgiving. Verse 7, ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? God asks, should people cheat God, yet you have cheated me? But you ask, what do you mean? When do we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. This is the only place in the whole Bible where God says that we can test him. In other words, he's saying, go ahead, make my day. I'll prove it to you. He goes on to describe this, and you got to put yourself in the mindset of like a farmer. Your crops will be abundant, for I'll guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your lands will be so fine. God calls these people to repent, return to him. And how did he want them to express that repentance? By returning the tithes and offerings. This was a reflection of a heart surrendered to God. And he said, bring it into my storehouse. Right? That was the temple for them. It was the local church now for us. He says, test me. I'll bless you. I will, I will bless your life. And God does. He wants to give you every blessing that you can possibly receive. Giving God your heart results in so many different types of blessings, spiritually, physically, and even financially. And if God has blessed you financially, you know you've experienced it, and you're confident that he really does keep his word. I'm not going to go through in this message and spend time reading you a bunch of testimonies of people who say, you know, God blessed me and it really did. It was amazing because as awesome as that is, and it makes me cry and it's so great. I don't want you to start giving because of someone else's awesome testimony. I want you to give because you've clearly seen in the word of God that this is what believers do. And I know I could go through, I could interview people, I could have them give you testimonies, but I don't got time for that. So if God has blessed your life through tithing, why don't you just give him a shout of praise real quick. Yeah, somebody's in the back like, yeah, right? Like, okay, New Testament times. Jesus enters the scene, which is so good, right? Jesus is here. Yes, what does this do for giving? Matthew 5, verse 7. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus came to do what men couldn't do. He lived up to God's standard. We couldn't do it. We could not perfectly love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so Jesus did it for us. That's how he's able to bring forgiveness to men once and for all. That's how he's able to make us righteous in God's sight. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He never sinned. He met every requirement of the law. So think about this. You might have never considered this before. Jesus tithed because he met every requirement of the law. That means his whole life he tithed. 
faithfully. He satisfied the requirements of the law, and he fulfilled the purpose of the law, which was to make men right with God. So then what did he say about giving? Did he say, hey, guys, I'm here now. Don't worry about that money thing anymore. It's all good now, right, because I'm here. That was just like a thing for a little while. I'm here now. No, he goes on to Matthew 6, 21, and he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because our treasure and our hearts are connected. That's why when we start talking about a subject like this, so many people get so tense because you're talking about the heart. And this is why so many of Jesus' parables were about money because he wanted to speak to people in their hearts. Now, I got to tell you, financial giving reflects a heart after God, and God wants to be first in your heart. But Jesus actually did mention tithing. He didn't talk about it a lot. I think because in this era, it was such common sense and so obvious that it didn't need to be reiterated a lot. But then we do see some real insight into what he thinks about tithing. In Matthew 23, 23, he's talking to some religious leaders. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now, look what he says. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So Jesus says, you should tithe. But really, he wants us to not just tithe out of religious practice. He wants it to come from a sincere place in our heart, where our heart for God overflows into all aspects of our life by showing mercy, by doing justice, by having faith in God's promises, by caring for widows and orphans and loving the world. And tithing is a part of that. But these religious leaders, they were just doing it out of religion, not out of a true heart for God. Time out now, real quick. I just got to point this out. So if all I knew through reading scripture was that one, Jesus tithed, and two, Jesus said, you should tithe, yes. For me, that's enough. If that's all I knew, I just know he never came back later and was like, never mind about all that. All he said about tithing that I know that I have a record of in the word of God is you should tithe, yes. Let alone all the other scriptural evidence, which I'm only scratching the surface on today because of time constraints, Jesus endorses this action, but he's just saying, I want you to do that, but I also want your faith to be sincere. So through Jesus, we're saved by grace, through faith, he made us righteous. So you got to realize we don't tithe to earn God's favor, right? As Christians, we already have God's favor. We don't tithe to get a merit badge from Jesus or to be able to brag to one another, like I'm a super Christian because I tithe. Hear me, hear, hear me on this, right? We don't tithe for the financial blessings. We don't give to God in order to get. God is not running a Ponzi scheme, right? If you invest 100, you'll get back 150, right? Jesus' death on the cross and the gift of eternal life that he's given us, I think that pretty much satisfied the requirements for giving on Jesus' behalf. If he never did another thing for me, that would be good. Yet the reality is he does bless us in our finances, and many of you have experienced that. But that's not the reason we give. I'm going to break it down. The reason that a Christian saved by grace continues to give tithes and offerings is for the same reason that God has always wanted his people to give tithes 
tithes and offerings because he has given us life and we have given him our heart. That's why we give. So then Jesus goes on and he sacrifices his life. He dies, he's resurrected, comes back, gives his people the Holy Spirit. What happens with these new Christians now? It's the New Testament church, which we are a part of today. What did they do? Sweet, we don't have to tithe anymore. We don't have to give. What am I going to do with all my extra cheddar? I'm going to buy me a new donkey, man. Right? Like, I'm going to get new rims for my wagon. I'm going to get me a new robe. I'm going to bedazzle that robe because I got all this extra money now since I don't have to give to God anymore. Okay, so spoiler alert, that's not what they did. They had a passion for the kingdom of God and a passion for the lost who needed Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So first off, just relax, because I'm not going to tell you to sell everything you have, okay? That was descriptive, not prescriptive for us. So don't be nervous. But I'm showing you that these new Christians, they had just witnessed the resurrected Jesus. They just received the Holy Spirit, and they were so jacked about Jesus that they were ready to give everything they had away. They were saying, hey, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I just want to see the kingdom of God grow. If I see a need, I'm going to fill it. If I see a hurt, I'm going to heal it. Whatever you need, God, I'm yours. I'm ready to do it. Let's do this. They became even more generous. Now I'm going to close this thing by bringing it full circle. In the New Testament, we're going into the epistles, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. We go back to the conversation about Abraham and the dude with the funny name, Melchizedek. <laughs> Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now the law of Moses required that the priests, who are descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham, and Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promise of God. Go to verse 15. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek, has appeared. It's Jesus, okay? It says, Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi. He did it. He was from the tribe of Judah, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. I'm going to connect this in a second. Go to verse 22. It says, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. In other words, they died. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Yeah. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. I wish I could read this whole chapter in detail. But I want to give you the main point here. I'm going to tie this back to the beginning. Abraham gave a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. 
before the law was ever established as a way of worshiping God and saying, God, everything I have is yours and I want to honor you with my wealth. I'm going to put you first. But then the author goes through this whole, this whole connection process of saying that Jesus is like Melchizedek, but even better and even greater. He gives us a greater blessing than what Abraham receives. He establishes a better covenant with God than the old covenant. He saved us by grace. He intercedes on our behalf. And here's the question, right? Am I going to do less for Jesus than Abraham did for Melchizedek, being saved by grace once and for all? The answer is, I don't think so. I can do more. Because grace giving far exceeds religious giving. And a Christian who gives by God's grace is not doing it to earn God's grace. So I just got to ask this tough question for a second. How can we justify doing less under grace than people did under the law? Giving God first, giving to him first, that first 10%, honestly, it's the threshold. It's the starting point. It's not the Mount Everest of Christian giving. Like, I've done it. I'm a tither. I've arrived. Really, it's like the training wheels of Christian giving. Like, I've done it. I've begun. So here's the answer. I want to I help you with this, okay? How do I tithe? I want to make this very practical for everyone to connect the dots. Tithing is based on increase. Now, you probably don't get paid goats and goats and sheep and, and crops anymore. So when your wealth increases, that's what we tithe on. It's our income. It's if you win uh, the lottery. I'm not going to judge you. Just make sure you tithe. If you get an inheritance, right, if you profit on a sale, that's increase. And so we, we tithe on the increase. So what if I'm a business owner? Business owners is a little bit more complicated, you might wonder. It's when you pay yourself. That's your increase. When you profit, that's your increase. So you tithe on, on that. For a normal employee, most people are employees, you're going to wake up on payday in this day and age. You might still get a paper check, but you probably get a direct deposit, okay? So let's just say hypothetically, you wake up on payday, and in your checking account, now it says there are 1,500 new dollars there. What do you do? You tithe first. The 10% tithe on that $1,500, I know this is going to blow your minds, it's $150. I did that math on the spot, okay? <laughs> Be impressed. A little, tr little trick here is you just move that decimal place one, point, one spot over to the left, and you found 10%, okay? I'm going to connect this out a little further just so everyone's clear. Maybe you get paid twice a month at $1,500, $3,000 a month. Over 12 months, it adds up to $36,000 and 10% of $36,000 will be $3,600. I even did that on the spot. I'm on a roll here, okay? So you can kind of use these tools to figure out your own situation. You might earn less money than that. You might earn way more money than that. That's the beautiful thing about tithing. It's the same for everyone. It doesn't matter to God how much your tithe is. He cares about your heart. Saying, God, everything is yours. I surrender to you. He cares little to nothing about how much that number is. Remember the story about the, the woman who gave all that she had in the temple, and Jesus said she gave more than those wealthy people. They gave out of their wealth, which is a way of saying they tithed out of their wealth. She gave everything she had, even though it was just a couple pennies. 
That's what God cares about, your heart. Okay, so we're getting into the weeds of this. Should I tithe on my net pay or my gross pay? I'm just going to be honest with you as a pastor. I don't feel like there's enough biblical evidence to definitively say without becoming potentially legalistic. And so I don't want to do that because it's not really the most important factor. What matters is your heart. Okay, now here's the next question. What if I don't have the money? Well, let me just be, again, clear. The problem is not that you don't have the money. The problem is that your budget is in the wrong order. Nobody, nobody can say, I can't afford to tithe. Because the tithe only happens first. If it's not first, it's not the tithe. You either tithe or you don't. It's not about what you can afford. It's about what's first in your life. And so I'm just going to be clear. I'm not going to be like the priests in Malachi and say that it's okay to give God your leftovers. I do not, I do not want to be thrown on the manure pile, okay, you guys? Like, I just don't need that drama in my life. So I'm going to be the bearer of truth, and I'll take your arrows if you don't like this, but you give to God first. That's the first fruits. That's your tithe. He wants the first. He wants the best. That's the way it is, okay? Then what do I do? Then in my budget, I pay for shelter, I pay for food, I pay for clothing. Well, Ryan, are you worried you're not gonna have enough? No, because I trust God to provide, and every time I tithe, I prove that to myself and to the Lord. Then if I have money left over, I buy a car. I get myself a cell phone so I can tweet cool things about church and God. And then I get cable in my house so I can watch the Cardinals play on Monday Night Football, although not this year so much. And then... I get things like internet, and I go and I eat out, and, and I go and I buy new sneakers, and I drink lattes, and I go on vacation. I do those things after I have already tithed. And what's so cool is that because I've already tithed, now I can enjoy those things even more fully because I know that my life is in the proper order, my finances are in the proper order, and God's going to bless me for living that way. Let me just be clear with you. If I heard this message and I wasn't tithing and I said, I have a full budget, sorry, there's no room for tithing. Guess who's getting bumped? Not God, but I might bump SRP back. I might tell Verizon, hey, sorry. I might tell Starbucks, I won't be seeing you for a while. Might not be showing up to Harkins, but God, he will come first because he's first in my heart. And that's where he wants to be in your heart. Jim Rohn is a business leader. He said, if you really want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. So I would say, find a way. Don't make excuses. Make a difference. Now, if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, right, you're not a Christian, maybe your friend brought you today, maybe your mom brought you, you might be thinking right now, this is crazy. You all are crazy. Okay, this is not for non-Christians. This is only for Christians, to be honest. Okay, but I got to even challenge your ideas. I got to challenge your notions. Is it crazy or is it crazy to continue living my life and handling my finances the way that the world prescribes? The world says, I'm going to provide for myself. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm not going to rely on anyone else. Well, ask where that leaves you. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave the person who just lost his job? Where does that leave the person who finds himself going through bankruptcy when he has said, well, I'm going to provide for myself. I'm going to make it happen for me. Ask the person who just signed the $25 million Cardinals football contract, 
where it leaves him when he finally gets that huge payday he had been looking to his whole life to satisfy his desires. The thrill subsides and he's left with emptiness inside. It's the most terrible and scary day of his life. So is it crazy to do it your way? Or is it crazy to say, I'm going to trust God to provide for me? I'm going to trust God to meet my needs? No matter what storms come my way in life, I know that God will take care of me. And I know that there is only one who saves. There's only one who secures. There's only one who satisfies. It's the triune, holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm putting him first. I'm going to do it his way. So I wanna ask you as we close, does God have your heart? Does God have your heart? If you tithe already, I would just ask you, I just wanna challenge you, make sure that God has your heart and that you're not just doing this out of religious habit. Stop and think about it. Make sure that this is something you're doing out of a heart of worship for God. If you don't tithe, maybe you're here today, like you said in your heart right now, you're saying, man, I never understood this before. I have people come to me at first service. I never understood this. So if that's you, man, awesome. That's so great that the word of God, which is alive and active, has spoken to you. It's exposed inside of you what you need to do. It's great that that happens. Now I would just challenge you and encourage you, take action. Do it. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer of the word. And if you're here and you say, I don't tithe, and you're like, well, I still have questions. I'm not fully convinced. Okay, I respect that honesty. Then I would challenge you, go after the truth ask those questions and figure it out. Don't just leave it as an unsettled issue in your heart, dot, 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 to be continued and continue living without knowing what's right for your life. Maybe you're here and you say, I don't tithe and I have no interest in doing so. I am not feeling this at all. Okay, well, I just want to ask you again, does God have your heart? Does he have your heart, because that's what's really important here. If God has your heart, then that starts to change everything in your life and all your priorities. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads now as we close. God, thank you for speaking to us through your word, and thank you for showing us what's true. If you're here and you'd say, God does not have my heart. I know that I've been living on my own apart from him. I know that I've been doing things my own way. I've been making choices that I know are not right. And now I want to stop doing it my own way, and I want to start doing it God's way. I'm ready for a, a new change. I want to be forgiven. I want to be made right with God. I want to become a part of God's family and experience this favor and everlasting life, which the Bible talks about. If you're here, you might have come today not expecting to make this step of faith, but I want to give you an opportunity to do so and say, hey, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, and I want to follow him. I want to be forgiven. If you're ready to do that, just pray this prayer with me in your heart. Say, God, I need you. I need you and I'm turning to Jesus. I believe that he died for me to pay the penalty for my sins. And I believe that he rose again to give me victory and eternal life. And so forgive me of my sins. Help me to live for you, Jesus. Thank you for always loving me, even when I wasn't aware of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.